Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Hakuin Ekaku Zenji said, Sentient beings move endlessly through the cycle of birth and death, enduring interminable suffering. Inhabitants of the heavenly realms who live in a state of continuous pleasure never have a chance to seek enlightenment. Both pleasure and pain, both happiness and unhappiness, exist only in this human world. Whether you devote your time on earth to serious religious practice or idle it away, depends on you alone. The time to gain release from that endless suffering is now. What are you waiting for? And another section this one from the true and untransmittable Dharma. Now, as I recall the earnestness with which old Shoju entrusted his teaching to me, the way he told me how much he was counting on me, I feel an immediate need to run off somewhere and hide my worthlessness. I am divulging my true thoughts to you like this only because I fervently desire that you will expend every effort to make the true penetrating wind blow once again through the ancestral gardens and breathe vigorous and enduring strength into the fundamental principles of our school. This moment, Hakuin Zenji said in the Song of Zazen, which we just recited, at this moment, what more need we seek? Snowflakes are swirling gently 
December 5th penetrating breeze. A form of formlessness. As form. and disappearing. Many of you know the verse, beautiful snowflakes, none falls in an inappropriate place. Each of you in this most wondrous manifestation as you are could not be more you. And it's so refreshing, isn't it? After sitting long and getting tired and sitting some more, to finally feel the freedom to be as you are. To feel, oh, this time, this moment, this just being with nothing before and nothing after. To experience for yourself that which cannot be spoken or written and to be able to speak it and write it and read it and sing it and dance it. So today is Hakuin Zenji's commemoration day. Everybody who attends Rohatsu Session meets Hakuin Zenji on the fifth day of December. And everybody who does so has heard about his life. How many times? Impossible to say. His life is so interwoven 
with ours. And there are so many, many books, so many anecdotes, because truly he was a towering genius. Or the incomparable path of Zen. So it's impossible to pick out some selected anecdotes. I tried and I read book after book, immersing myself, and then, I can't, no, I just can't. How can I give all of that to you in whatever time we have allotted for this? And you've heard it all before, and you've discovered it all within. So this is a good opportunity to shut up. How many of you have never heard any of the anecdotes about Hakuin's life and teachings? Not a single hand is raised. Okay. Still, there are a few people for whom this is the first Rohatsu session, right? Can you raise your hands to this question? One, two, three, four, five, six. Ah, congratulations. As you have come to feel, it is a very special experience. And people who come each year are so grateful to be able to do this. But let's try for those of you who are here for this first time to have some fresh encounter with Hakuin Zenji. Where was he born? This is now your exam, those of you who come every year. Where was he born? Hmm? Jikyo, you were there. Where was he born? He was sure born in Hara. He was. Hara. A small village under a towering sacred mountain. Hmm? Who would like to show us? Hmm? Yes, but show us. 
Mount Fuji, Fuji-san. In fact, Fuji-san and Hakui Nekaku are considered the two most important gifts Japan has to give the world. So he was born at 2 a.m. on the 25th day of the 12th month of 1686. This, in the traditional Chinese calendar, is the hour of the ox, the day of the ox, the month of the ox, and the year of the ox. So look at our ox. It is said that he carved that effigy himself before rather than after passing away. <laughs> and we encountered it at Shoinji in the Founders Hall. Quite, quite unforgettable, that experience. So this powerful figure, powerful in his build physically, powerful in his mind, powerful with his nen, and most importantly, powerful in his vow. So when does the ox year come around again? Some of you may know. I know because Google knows. <laughs> it will come around hmm? 21. It will start February 11th of 2021. And because he was born at the end of the ox year, and the ox year ends January 31st, 2022, that's when we will have ox celebration for Hakuin Zenji. So stick around. <laughs> I plan to. But as we know, could be Doko will be doing. So this Hakuin Zenji, really amazing in his uncompromising approach to spiritual life. He was always driving himself and his monks Never waste a precious second. Find out for yourself. Experience this again and again. 
was also a creative genius. Wonderful paintings and scrolls as skillful means of presenting his very dramatic realization of the teachings. And in spite of how severe he was as a Zen teacher for the monastics, he was so loving and kind to the villagers and used his considerable genius in painting images that they could relate to and drawing and writing little verses, many of them quite funny. So through his levity, through his wit, being able to relate to their very difficult lives, he could bring his great compassion. As we heard Dokoro telling in the story of the baby yesterday. Is that so? And there are certain themes that we come upon again and again in his teachings. As I mentioned, the absolute urgency to awaken. Diligence to make ceaseless effort. And his exhortations that we listen to each evening really bring that home. Another theme, reforming and reigniting the fire of Zen in an age of laxity. The 1600s were a time when things had really just gone downhill like the Sung Dynasty in China, as Dokoro Sho was saying yesterday, even worse in the Ming Dynasty. And this happens to the spiritual teachings, ebbing and flowing and re-restored and revitalized by really powerful teachers who come along maybe once, in 500 years. Even Yogan Senzaki in our modern era in the 1900s constantly chastised the priests of Japan for their concerns for their own comfort and luxury at the expense of the parishioners who helped give them what they, more than what they needed to live very well. And in our age too, yes, very zenful. We really have to watch out. It's so tempting to feel, well, this prac 
practice is so wonderful. I want to share it. Let's see. How can I do that? Let's uh, think about ways of publicizing what we do here and bring in more people. The impulse, of course, is a noble one to share. This is such a life-transforming practice. But how do we do it? So Wakuin revitalized training and he organized the koan system and created one of the best known koans, the sound of one hand. Another theme that runs through his work and that was especially uh, had had a very strong impact on his life from an early age. Do you know? Hell. Hell. Some of his extraordinary visual works depict hell bodhisattva. To go into hell, this is Jizo Bodhisattva, to go into hell, to live in hell because of your great vow not to try to escape suffering, but to live right in the midst of it. Great hell Bodhisattva. Now, hell, as I'm sure most of you know, is one of the six realms in Buddhist cosmology. What are the others? Hungry ghosts. Hungry ghosts. Animal. Animal. Human. Hmm? Human. Human. The deva, god realm. That's what he was talking about, inhabitants of the heavenly realms. That's four. The fighting asuras. We're missing a realm. Hmm? Now we talked about that. We got that one. Hell, <laughs> where we started, remember, a few days ago? Here we are in what realm? Queen Zenji said, sentient beings move endlessly through the cycle of birth and death, enduring interminable suffering. The cycle of birth and death, karma. And then, in one of those realms, you never know, you might get there, heavenly realm, the Tushita heavens, 
where beings live in a state of continuous pleasure. What happens when beings live in a state of continuous pleasure? Complacency. They are, he said, they are not seeking enlightenment. They don't have that chance. So uh, this complacency leads to what? Huh? You've heard of the fall? And there we go again. Oh, cockroach. Or whatever. So to be born in human form is truly rare. And as he says, both pleasure and pain, the intermingling of pleasure and pain, both happiness and unhappiness, these are intermingled and are the ways in which we can awaken for all beings. The compassionate heart. He says it exists only in this human world. So whether you devote your time on earth to serious religious practice or idle it away depends on you alone. And all of us have experienced this, right? Just in these few hours since November 30th, we have experienced this. The time to gain release from that endless suffering is now. What are you waiting for? Now, most people in his time did believe that there was a place called hell. And if they didn't believe it, they felt that it was necessary to go to some priest and ask about it, at least. And so you're probably familiar with the story from uh, Zen Flesh and bones. This is Yogen Senzaki translation. A soldier named Nobushige came to Hakuin and asked, is there really a paradise and a hell? Who are you? inquired Hakuin. I am a samurai, the warrior replied. You, a soldier, exclaimed Hakuin. What kind of ruler would have you as his guard? Your face looks like that of a beggar. Nobushige became so angry that he began to draw his sword. But Hakuin continued. So you have a sword. Your weapon is probably much too dull to cut off my head. As Nobushige drew his sword, Hakuin remarked, Here open the gates of hell. At these words, the samurai, perceiving 
masters. Nini sheathed his sword and bowed. Here open the gates of paradise, Hakuin said. How many of you believe in hell? A place. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, in our contemporary culture, some of you may be familiar with a TV series that now is on Netflix called The Good Place. And it's about heaven and hell as places, not just as some kind of psychological, uh, but as places, right? Not, not mere um, emotional and psychological states. And as I said, during session, we become quite aware of these states as having some sort of perceived reality at least during the time that we're in them, particularly in hell, not so much paradise. It doesn't seem to have the same conditioned quality, does it? It's only when something brings you back to some past event or emotional memory or something that takes you back into the suffering that is so easy to believe is real. Well, Hakuin did believe in hell and uh, In this book, like most of the, let me just read to you this section. In the religious art of Zen master Hakuin, Katsuhiro Yoshizawa, Comments. For Hakuin, hell was very real. Throughout his writings, he vehemently denounces priests who reject the notion of a world after death, who deny a karmic link between this world and the next. He found it perfectly reasonable to declare. The Buddhist dharma considers belief in karmic cause and effect and a future life and fear of the sufferings of karmic retribution to be wisdom of the highest order. Now, I'm sure many of you remember that when he was 11 years old, he had a very deep and disturbing interaction with 
a Nichiren priest's description of hell. His mother was a devout follower of Nichiren Buddhism, and he would often go with her to the local temple. And one day, when he was 11, the priest gave a sermon about hell, about cause and effect, and gave an in-depth account of the various torments that lay ahead. And so it caused 11-year-old Hakuin to reflect on his life up to that point. And he was acutely aware of his misdeeds, killing insects and frogs and reptiles, telling lies, starting fights with his friends. And he thought to himself, I am going to hell. How can I avoid it? And just that evening, his bath was prepared, and he looked at the flames leaping up around the iron cauldron, and there it was. And that experience made him resolve to become a Buddhist monk. His parents refused to allow it, just as Kyozan's parents had said, no, no, no. But he kept imploring them, and finally they realized that it had to happen. So at the age of 14, 15 in the Japanese way of counting, he was allowed to enter the neighboring temple of Shoinji and went for sutra study. Sutra study was taught at Daishoji. Daishoji was where the Lotus Sutra was the primary text. And he didn't think much of it. He thought, these are just reassurances for simple-minded folk. Then, at 18, he read about what Dokoro Osho alluded to the other day, how the great Ganto Zenkatsu was murdered by bandits. Hakuin was appalled. After all, in the Lotus Sutra, it says, Think on the power of Kanzeon, and bandits cannot harm you. How could this be? The great Ganto. Lotus Sutra, well, not much help. And it sent him into a period of real disillusionment and despair, thinking, what's the use of being a monk? If Ganto could be slaughtered by bandits, what can possibly protect me? This was a literal understanding, not so uncommon in that day. But for him, it caused him to kind of walk away from being uh, completely immersed in his practice. And he started involving himself with literature and more with painting and 
just every day feeling, what should I do? This is not what I am here for. What am I really here for? How many of you have had that experience where you just couldn't, you just didn't know which way to go? And what you thought you could believe in, suddenly the rug pulled out from under you. Now what? Do I go to a new belief system? Another formula, Sabuti? Where can I go? Well, praying as he was for direction, of course the Dharma responded, because the Dharma was not about to lose someone like Hakuin. And it turned out that he went to a temple that happened to be airing out its books. And he thought, okay, I'll shut my eyes. I'll pick out a book and I'll open it at random. And the book turned out to be Spurrings and Students Through the Barrier. And he read of the story of Jimyo constantly keeping himself awake by digging into his flesh with an awl and just felt this renewal of his spirit, revitalization of his vow and his faith restored. And from that point on, he went on a long wandering from temple to temple and finally back to Shoinji, where he happened to be sitting one day and Mount Fuji erupted. And such was his dedication that everyone fled and he just kept sitting. So went to another temple, lecture series was being given, sat through the nights, And in his autobiography, he speaks of what happened. One night, while sitting, I worked on penetrating the source of my self-nature, keeping at it without rest, pushing myself mercilessly. I suddenly heard the sound of a distant temple bell. My body and mind dropped completely away. Overwhelmed with joy, I shouted, Old Ganto is alive and well. And he also said, From that time on, the banners of self-esteem soared up higher than the mountain peaks. I kept crowing to myself, No one in the past 300 years has achieved such a profound enlightenment. He was 23 years old. He was searching for what he 
felt in all of his travels he had not found, which was a greatly enlightened master. And it just so happened that he met someone who was a student of Shoju Rojin. In our chanting, we know him by his Buddhist name, Dogyo Etan. Comes right before Hakuin in our lineage chant. And right after Shido Bunan Zenji. Hakuin, again in his autobiography, said, The old teacher took one look at me and immediately asked, How do you see Joshu's move? No way to lay a hand or a foot on that, I replied. Shoju reached out, grabbed the end of my nose, and said, Well, I just laid a hand on it. And everything was thrown into a completely different situation. My former joy and elation was now transformed into so much sorrow and woe. Seeing me in this pitiful state aroused grandmotherly concern in the old teacher. He assigned me venomous Zen stories to work on, including Chu Kokushi's Memorial Tower. Chu Kokushi we heard about, remember? Not so long ago, who received the teachings of esoteric Zen from sixth ancestor and passed them on to Tongen, who passed them on to Kyozan, who burned them. So Hakuin, staying with Shoju Rojin and being humiliated time after time, being called a poor hole-dwelling demon, and continuing and continuing with great fervor and going out on Takuhatsu, as we will be doing this evening, Chanting which, as you know, means Dharma. And had a very well-known encounter with an old woman and a broom. I'm sure all of you know about that. We will not have her here tonight, as far as I know. But what do I know? One of us could be transformed. And so anyway, she didn't want him there begging. She came out with her broom and gave him a hard swat. (laughs) 
I told you to go somewhere else. At that instant, the meaning of the ancient Zen masters was his. This is from his disciple, Torenji. And he went back to Shoju's place, who saw from the look on his face what had happened and welcomed him with delight. You have come through, he said. And he spent the next eight months with Shoju Rojin, who told him, Commitment to practicing Zen must be genuine. Practice must be true practice. Realization must be true realization. So just from these little snippets of various anecdotes, you can really feel how much Hakuin felt the absolute importance, the necessity of tremendous effort to see, to break through, to be able to free himself and others from suffering. And I read to you that excerpt from Poison Blossoms from a Thicket of Thorn, where he says the time to gain release from that endless suffering is now. He was 58, and then had many other experiences, and yet still felt there's something more more than the wonderful breakthroughs that I have had, I'm missing something. The precious mirror cave tells of his sense of what was missing. He said, there is no doubt where the cause of my problem lies. Having achieved Kensho, I have penetrated the nature of discrimination, but because my ties to life are still not completely severed, and because the power I might derive from samadhi is also not yet mature, I still have trouble integrating the Dharma truth I have grasped into my daily life. Some of you may have some glimmer of this kind of concern when you have realized something and still are wondering what happens when I go back. What will come crashing down on me when 
I have to engage in all the difficult matters that lie ahead. He went back to Shoinji and then at age 41, he reread the Lotus Sutra. And I'll read from Tore's biography. One night, as he was reading in the chapter on parables, a cricket began shrilling at the foundation stones of the temple. The instant the sound reached his ears, the deep principle of the lotus was suddenly his. The doubts and uncertainties that had arisen at the beginning of his religious quest and remained with him all this time now suddenly dissolved and ceased to exist. He could see with perfect clarity the reason for the lotus's reputation as the king of sutras. He let out an involuntary shout and began weeping uncontrollably. He was able to see for the first time the enlightened words and deeds that had marked Shoju's everyday life. And from this moment on, he lived in complete freedom and integration of his deep awakening with daily life. He wrote, you, when you have this kind of experience, will be at liberty to spend your days free from the clutches of circumstance. You will drink tea when it is given, eat rice when it is served. Doing and non-doing will be firmly in your grasp. And at the age of 54, this second excerpt was written now, as I recall the earnestness with which old Shoju entrusted his teaching to me, the way he told me how much he was counting on me, I feel an immediate need to run off somewhere and hide my worthlessness. I am divulging my true thoughts to you like this, only because I fervently desire that you will expend every effort to make the true penetrating wind blow once again through the ancestral gardens and breathe vigorous and enduring strength into the fundamental principles of our school. 
And that was at the great lecture meeting that he gave at Shoinji with 400 people in attendance. And you have to know, Shoinji was such a poor, run-down temple, very small, still is today. There were no places for people to sleep, and the, everything that brought them there was so important to hear this great master. They were willing to go through whatever difficulties that being there would bring. We're so fortunate to have this beautiful place, to have Edo Roshi's keen awareness of the very best possible surroundings and atmosphere. And everything is so beautiful. And we are sitting in such a paradise and being served such delicious food, not maggoty rice the way Shoenji had, and watery soup, but really nurturing and nourishing food of all kinds. And how can we do anything less than what Hakuin Zenji said? to expend every effort to make the true penetrating wind of this great practice. How can we thank our teachers? Truly, I feel an immediate need to run off somewhere and hide my worthlessness. When I think about everything that they went through to bring this incredible practice to us here in America, what they endured. Now it's up to us. So I'll end with a little poem that Akuin Zenji wrote in Japanese first. Rosetsu tenni suranate shiroshi. The translation. The year-end snow reaches white to the sky. So here we are, white everywhere, trees, lake, sky. Feeling this cold, penetrating wind, becoming that completely. Feeling the presence of Hakuin, whose name is White. Not one single thing 
pure white. In the mind, no extraneous thoughts, just white on white on white. This is, is what we are doing here. And we are integrating it. That is our vow. We have to return to the struggling, everyday world, the world of differentiation. And we must never be apart from the experience of this one mind. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.